Open your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Our study tonight will be verses 1 to 27, which is the entirety of the chapter. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Beginning at verse 1 of 2 Chronicles 28, and Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the king of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Therefore the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. For Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Zichri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Maaseah, the king's son, and Azrakam, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the next in authority to the king. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded, and he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me, and send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Certain chiefs, also of the men of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Jehanan, Berechiah the son of Meshilamoth, Jehezekiah the son of Shalom, and Amasa the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who were coming from the war and said to them, You shall not bring the captives in here, for you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to all our present sins and guilt. For our guilt is already great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel." So the armed men left the captives and spoil before the princes and all the assembly, and the men who had been mentioned by name rose and took the captives, and with the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them, and carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought, to their, brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, to the city of palm trees. There they returned to, then they returned to Samaria. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help, for the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives, and the Philistines had made raids on the cities in the Shephelah and the Negev of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ayalon, Gederoth, Soko, and its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimza with its villages, and they settled there. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. 
So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Assyria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all his ways from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel, and Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for these ancient records that speak to us now because you are the one who's speaking. We thank you for how the chronicler was careful to research and to record by your inspiration all these events for his generation long ago, that they would seek you. Well, Lord, may we now learn what he wanted them to learn what you have for us, that we should seek you with all our hearts, trusting only you, for you are our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. King Ahaz of Judah is best known, I think, to Bible readers for his confrontation with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7. An alliance had been formed against Judah, leading to what is known as the Syro-Ephraimite War. The year is about 735 B.C. Now, what was happening was the northern kingdom of Israel, together with the Syrians in Damascus, wanted to break away from the Assyrian Empire. They established a rebel coalition, but Judah would not join them. So they launched their war to coerce Judah into joining them by uh, deposing the, the king of the house of David and putting their own king on the throne. Now, Isaiah went in chapter 7 of Isaiah to meet with Ahaz to strengthen him in order to assure him that if he only trusted the Lord, this invasion was going to fail. But then he warned in words that are famous, Isaiah 7, 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He must trust the Lord. Well, Ahaz refused to do that. In fact, Isaiah went so far as to say, the Lord will offer you a sign. That doesn't happen all the time in the Old Testament. He said, you pick the sign, the Lord will give it to you. But he didn't want to believe. He didn't want to be strengthened. He refused the sign. So Isaiah responded with one of the greatest prophecies of the birth of Jesus in the Old Testament. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, Second Chronicles 28 tells Ahaz's story. He came to the throne at a young age, at a crossroads of history, and this young king failed to meet the challenge. In one of history's greatest acts of folly, he committed his faith to the Assyrian conqueror, Tiglath-Pileser III, 
And he invited the Mesopotamian powers to start meddling in the affairs of Palestine over the next 150 years. That's going to be utterly ruinous to God's covenant people. Ahaz's betrayal planted the roots of a crisis that required the greatness of his son Hezekiah to answer at great cost to the people. Now the chronicler is going to devote four chapters to Hezekiah. I'm looking forward to together uh, studying one of the great but little-known figures of the Bible, Hezekiah, in the chapters that follow. It's one of the longest accounts after David and Solomon in the book of Chronicles. But the story of Hezekiah's life really begins with the apostasy of his father, King Ahaz. Andrew Stewart summarizes his legacy that Ahaz wanted to strengthen his kingdom and defend his borders, but he was a man who grasped at straws to achieve his goals. Actually, it's much worse than that. Under Ahaz, the kingdom of Judah grasped at the idols of the world and began a crisis that would not come to its terminus until the old covenant was dissolved in the exile of the people of Judah. Well, I want to look at three points tonight. First, we have an inevitable judgment, followed by an unexpected encouragement, and then an inexcusable betrayal. Let's look at the inevitable judgment first. We have the normal biographical information about Ahaz. We're told he was 20 years old when he came to the throne. He reigned for 16 years, verse 1. But it does stand out when we read his spiritual assessment because here, and this is really the first time in Second Chronicles, there is nothing good to be said at all. It's uniformly bad. Now you have previous kings like Joash and Amaziah who ended up badly, but even they started out at least formally adhering to the worship of God. We're told that Joash and Amaziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Only later did they go astray. But even that's not said about Ahaz. We read in verse 1, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He did not even keep an outward observance of the true faith of the house of David. Instead, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Verse 2, now that refers to the wicked idolatrous line of Ahab and Jezebel in Samaria. Andrew Stewart writes, Ahaz's reign was one of the most wicked in the history of Judah. And under his leadership, Judah became perilously similar to the northern Israelite kingdom in its rebellion to the Lord. Now at a time when Judah greatly needed to turn decisively to the Lord. He, he Actually, his father was a godly man. Not that strong, but a godly man. His grandfather was the great King Uzziah. For 52 years he reigned, although he sinned at the end of his life. They, they needed to, to, to take that momentum, as it were, and to turn decisively to the Lord. Instead, he turned the people towards idols. Verse 3. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and he burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Now you may know that the valley of the son of, sons of Hinnom was later given the popular name Gehenna. And Jesus would use it as a picture of hell. It was a trash heap. And along with the refuge of their city, they burned their children on the altars, whether to Molech or to Baal. Now, 
Here we have a provoking of the Lord to the fiercest wrath. It, it was these sins, the Chronicle notes, these were the sins committed by the Canaanites who occupied the land before Israel came. It, it was God's judgment on the Amorites and uh, all the other Canaanite peoples who were utterly destroyed under the time of Joshua when the Israelites came into the land. But under Ahaz, the house of David became an abomination in God's sight. Again, it was bad enough for him to imitate the kind of the standard idol worship of the surrounding peoples. But this child sacrifice of the Canaanites would not be born by the Lord. In fact, later on, this is the mid to late 8th century B.C., 735. Later on, 100 years later, when we get to the time of Jeremiah, it is specifically for this sin, particularly as, as expanded under Manasseh, his grandson, that the Lord finally decided to destroy the nation. Now, moreover, while prior kings had at least tried to stamp out the pagan shrines around the land, Ahaz actively promoted the practice, verse 4, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now, given this introduction, it is no surprise, given what we've learned in Second Chronicles, to learn that there is an inevitable judgment that's going to happen. You think back to Amaziah, a few generations earlier, Amaziah, remember he defeated the Edomites in battle, but then he decided he would worship their gods. That made no sense at all. And therefore he was defeated. That was the judgment on that idolatry. And the same thing happened to other kings. And so the same thing will happen to Ahaz. The Syro-Ephraimite alliance is seeking to force Judah into joining their rebellion against Assyria, and they descended and they utterly routed Ahaz. Verse 5, therefore the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. Now, we've been watching over the generations at the dwindling military power of the kingdom of Judah. Back in the time of Jehoshaphat, over 100 years earlier, they could field a million ready men. And in, in the time of Uzziah, it was about 350,000. Well, he loses in this battle against Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel. He loses 120,000 men in a single day. Now, many scholars come and they say, no, those numbers aren't realistic. Well, they are realistic. Look at the Battle of Kenai, where the... Publius Quintus Vero went out to fight against Hannibal Barca of the, with his great uh, Carthaginian force. The Roman army, we know, lost 76,000 de dead in a single day. Those numbers are not unrealistic for ancient warfare, mainly because of the close quarters. There was no place to go. When you're ranked nowadays, you can you get captured. Back then, you were all slain. Now, it is true, however, that the word for thousand often means units. The same word is used for thousand and units. So this number might be revised down, but it is horrific either way. It's a crippling of the military might of Judah. Moreover, key leaders, Judah, key leaders fell. His son Maaseah was, was killed. Uh, Azrakam of the palace guard, Elkanah, the second man in authority in the kingdom, all were slain, verses 6 and 7. Now, remember that the chronicler is telling these stories several hundred years later, to persuade his own generation of the folly of turning aside from faith in the Lord. 
And so he makes it crystal clear. You have to love this about the Chronicles. There's no guessing what the lesson is. Look at verse 6. Here's why it happened. Because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. God had proven himself over and over to be completely faithful. He delivered his people in spectacular ways. The, 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 the very history of Judah is spectacular divine deliverances, but they would not trust him. He had also proven faithful to deliver his covenant curse in afflicting those who turned away. Ahaz was faithless before the Lord, and he, along with Judah, paid the penalty in blood. It was an inevitable judgment. It's followed, however, by a remarkable and unexpected encouragement. Now, the situation is dire. The sins of Ahaz are seen here to be, now we're imperiling the very existence of Judah as a viable nation. It gets worse in verse 8. Because in addition to the slaughter of the soldier, there's the captivity of a great host of the people. And in fact, you start to prefigure here the exile that will ultimately end the story of Judah. These little exiles start happening as prefigures of what is to come. And look at verse 8. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. 200,000 captives. Now, the 8th century B.C. witnessed many forced migrations of defeated peoples. It, It happened to be the Assyrian policy. They would conquer your land and up you would go. You'd leave everything behind and you're, you're, you're in change. You're dragged to some distant land. They would settle you there. They'd put somebody else in your land. It was how they controlled things. And yet how sad it is to see God's own people in a great mass trudging towards exile and, in fact, towards slavery in the northern kingdom. It's a vivid picture. It's a reminder of What are the stakes when it comes in our fidelity to the Lord? The very identity of Israel was a people who'd been delivered by grace, by the power of the Lord, from bondage, slavery in Egypt. If only they would trust him, but their unbelief, their idolatry restored them to their former terrible position. They would lose their liberty and their prosperity through unbelief, and they would not be the last of whom that would be said, the loss of liberty and property. And yet at this very moment, something unexpected occurred. We read in the book of Kings that throughout Israel's sordid history, there were still faithful prophets in that land. Elijah the Tishbite's the most famous, along with Elisha. And although the ten tribes had turned away from the Lord, the Lord had not removed the witness of his word. And so it was that when the exiled Judahites, trudging in chains up towards Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, behind the army, they arrive there, and there is a prophet who is there to greet the victors. This courageous servant of God confronts the Israelite army. Look at verse 9. Behold, because of the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah. He gave them into your hand, but you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. Now, his point is, it's true that you were God's chosen instruments of chastising the southern kingdom, and yet you have, you have been too violent about it. You have indulged it too much. The, the bloodshedding was too vicious. The Lord's aim was to humble Judah, not destroy it. You know, that is ever the case with God's discipline. The God never destroys his people. He doesn't destroy us when he chastises us. 
Hebrews 12.10 says that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. And so this same rebuke might be given today to harsh Christian parents whose mode of discipline breaks the spirit of their children, or to churches where the, where the elders and the leaders rule with an excessive and an unloving authority. Chastisement from God, discipline from the Lord, is intended to humble but not to destroy. Now, moreover, this new endeavor to actually enslave people from Judah was a flagrant violation of God's law. Look at verse 10, Oded continues, and now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. I was referring to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 42, among other places, which says that God's covenant people are not to be sold permanently into slavery, for they are my servants who I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. Now, there was indentured servitude. There was a form of debt slavery, but there was not chattel slavery, and it was not to be done to God's people. Now, how encouraging it is to see that that while the northern kingdom of Israel had long, long since forsaken its covenant with the Lord, it had effectively become a pagan nation. And yet the Lord had not forgotten his covenant with this people. Wicked Israel had long since fallen under the curse of the covenant, but, but they remained the covenant people. They remained Israel. And so the Lord continued to maintain a faithful witness to his, to his word through these prophets like Oded. Likewise, what a mercy it is from God today when a faithful church persists within nations that have forsaken their Christian heritage. What a difference it can make that the faithful preaching goes on, that the Christians are witnessing to their neighbors. There's prayers restraining sin and evil even in lands that have forsaken the Lord. That's what, that's what we see. Now, with this aim of restraining sin in mind, Oded was very bold. He rebukes the army, and he points out their own sin before the Lord. Verse 10, have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? You see, whatever idols they worshipped, the Lord was still their God. And just as the Lord had recently, there's an object lesson, wasn't there? <laughs> Look what just happened to Judah. Does that not make a point? He judged them, he can judge you. You should fear the Lord. They should not sin boldly before the Lord. Oded therefore concluded, verse 11, Now hear me and send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Verse 11. Well, Christians living in the post-Christian West, I think, become often discouraged about the way the Bible is so regularly dismissed and marginalized and even ridiculed in our society. So we are tempted to think that our witness is hardly worth keeping up. But Oded's example reminds us that the power of God's word is not limited by the hardened condition of its hearers. Let me say that again. It's what it shows us. The power of God's word is not limited by the hardened condition of its hearers. Hebrews 4.12 said, The word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's spirit at his will causes it to go deeply within. And exactly this divine power through the word of God is put on display by the preaching of this courageous but little-known prophet. Now, the Old Testament actually has a number of wonderful displays of 
God's grace working mightily in the darkest of places through the preaching of his word. Elisha, Elijah the Tishbite, 1 Kings 18, he goes to Mount Carmel and he has the contest with the, the multitudes of the priests of Baal and he, he causes the people to turn at least briefly away from idol worship. Maybe most striking is the ministry of the prophet Jonah. He actually goes to Nineveh, the military capital of this very Assyrian empire. Read the book of Jonah. And he walks the length of the city and he's preaching the wrath of God on the city. And by the power of God's word, Nineveh repents. Let's not forget what the Bible shows us about the power of God's word. Now, the spirit of these kinds of men has animated the missionary enterprise of the Christian church after the Bible in one great display after another of God's gracious power through his word. William Carey expressed the zeal of faithful servants with his missionary motto, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. Well, let me say that Oded was an adherent to that philosophy. He believed the same way William Carey did. And he stand athwart this army, a victorious army, and he called them to repent. And in a remarkable reminder of this very power, they did. They did. The chronicler reports that certain chiefs among the Israelites came forward and spoke out of chastened hearts. Actually, these are the, the chiefs the, the, the leaders in Samaria who listened to what he was saying. They were waiting for the army to come back. They heard his rebuke and they went forth. And their hearts were chastened and they addressed the soldiers. Their, their address is verse 13. You shall not bring the captives here. Imagine that. You can't bring them in. You can't bring the spoils of Judah in here, these previously wicked people said. For you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt. For our guilt is already great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel, verse 13. Now how did these people, this is a pagan city, although it's Israel, how did they know, how did they learn that the wrath of God was upon them? Because Odin had preached it to them. He preached the word, and by the preaching of the word, God gave the power for it to be believed, and they repented. Now, the story of what happened next was meant by the Lord to encourage his wayward people, both Israelite and Judahite, of the grace that is available through his word. Jeremiah later would sing, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And here was a new morning, as it were. Not only did the Israelite army let their captives go, that was kind of the minimum, bare minimum, one might expect, But the chastened chiefs were given their names. They went further by acting in great love towards their southern relatives. Verse 15, they they rose and took the captives, and with the spoil they clothed all who, who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them, and carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. Now, the scene is pitiful. 200,000 of God's people, many of them standing naked, all of them bereft on the highway into Samaria. But in this scene of beauty, the repentant chiefs, they brought forth garments and they clothed them. Food and drink were brought in great abundance that they might be nourished. 
Anointing oil was passed out to alleviate their damaged skin. Even donkeys were provided so the feeble and the aged would not have to walk. And then the whole massive uh, entourage goes back to the border of Judah where they had kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Now let me ask the question, does this data sound familiar to you, O reader of the New Testament? It should, because it seems extremely likely that our Lord Jesus drew the material for his parable of the Good Samaritan from this episode. The parallels are too, too many. For it to be otherwise, the chiefs of Israel, whose capital was Samaria, were among the very last people one might expect to set an example of God's grace. But God's word had come to them and they'd been struck to the heart with God's call to mercy. They, they acted just like the Samaritan in Jesus' parable. He, he came upon an injured, forlorn Judahite on the road to Jericho and that he had compassion on him, Luke ten thirty three. The good Samaritan bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him, Luke 10, 34. And so Jesus seems to have recalled this astonishing breakthrough of God's grace from Judah's ancient history as a reminder of what God can do and what he expects to happen through his word. Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Luke ten thirty seven. What an encouragement we receive in heeding God's call to proclaim the mercy of Jesus to everybody. And we, we learn from this episode that the Good Samaritan was a recent convert, if this episode is the background, because the prophet preached to him the word of the Lord. Martin Selman comments, no one's situation is too hopeless for God to redeem, and he reserves the right to show mercy through the most unexpected people. Well, this unexpected encouragement proves the claim of Psalm 103 about God's never-ceasing love. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Psalm 103, 8-9. Well, if there was any one person the Lord was seeking to encourage in this way, in order to urge him back to faith, undoubtedly it was Judah's king Ahaz. This story is put in the situation because God is giving him that sign that he didn't want, but now he gets it anyway. Remember how Isaiah met with him in Isaiah 7. He said, just trust on the Lord. He didn't want to trust the Lord. No, the Lord will give you a sign. Here it is, though he didn't want it. How often the Lord is kind to provide sinners with a an undeserved incentive to rethink what they're doing, to reconsider the pathway of sin and unbelief. And yet the chapter concludes not with Ahaz repenting. Instead, this dreadful king was resolute in refusing the Lord. He, he turned Judah on a road that would lead ultimately to its destruction. The chronicler starkly puts it this way. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help what it turns out to be an inexcusable betrayal by this king now the humiliations were compounding 
on Ahaz. He had his military power shattered. And of course, other people saw the opportunity. That's the way it works if you're going to play that game. The Edomites came in. They again invaded, verse 17, and defeated Judah and carried away captives. The Philistines, verse 18, they also raided and occupied nearby territory in Judah. And these events were the Lord further humbling his hard-hearted people, verse 19, because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and been very unfaithful to the Lord. Notice the, the adjectives there. He's very unfaithful. And so the breakout of mercy in Israel had proved that God's grace was available, yes, even to you, Ahaz, if only he would turn his heart to the Lord, but he did not. Instead, he grasped at one final straw of worldly support. He arranged a treaty with the dreadful conqueror, the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III. Now, 2 Kings chapter 16 provides more detail about what happened as a result of this alliance. Eager, oh, Tiglath-Pileser was eager to receive an invitation. He had coveted these lands for a long time. Now he had an opportunity, had an excuse to send his army down to Palestine. And he destroyed Syria. He conquered the, 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 the Syrian capital of Damascus. He deported its people. He slew its king. And he encroached upon Israel. We studied some months ago the book of Hosea and Hosea's dealing at the time when as a result of Ahaz, king of Judah's alliance, the Assyrians came and began parceling away the northern kingdom. Finally, by 722, just 11 years later, the northern kingdom doesn't even exist at all. There's a a contrast. The Lord had caused the, the pagan Israelites to have mercy on Judah, but the pagan Judahite is worse. He had no mercy on them at all, and Israel, the northern kingdom, is no more. Now, no doubt, Ahaz would have thought he had done pretty well. This was a neat, effective solution to his problems. He might be weak, but he, he had a strong friend, a very strong, this is one of the Genghis Khan figures of the ancient world, Tiglath-Pileser third, And yet, as will always be the case, the cost to himself and his people was incalculably calculably disastrous. Above all else, turning to Assyria for help involved utter apostasy from the Lord, who happens to be the God and creator of heaven and earth. Listen to 2 Kings 16.7, which records the actual message he sent to Tiglath-Pileser arranging this alliance. He said, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. But if you know your Old Testament, you say he already had a servant relationship. He was a servant of Yahweh, of the Lord, the living God. He had a savior on high. Why is he doing this? And you think of 2 Samuel seven fourteen, where God, when he made the covenant with David and his house, he said of his offspring, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. This same language is now given to Tiglath-Pileser. Dale Ralph Davis is not making light of this appalling situation when he, he takes the hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee, and he re- reworks its lines to reflect Ahaz's apostasy. It goes like this, My Tiglath, I bribe thee 
you know I'm your man. For thee, Yahweh's promises I view as mere sand. You're mighty, you mighty oppressor, my savior art thou. If ever I needed you, dear Tiglath, tis now. Now you see the point he's making. He's not making light of it. It's when God's people, whether Judah in Second Chronicles or the church today, calls upon the worldly powers and calls them Savior, we're establishing a relationship of worship and faith. We have one Savior. We have one Lord. There is one only whom we call Father. And he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I find this to be a remarkably contemporary emphasis. You you know very well the tumult of the last year or so in our country. and A lot of bad things have happened. I don't want to comment on any of it except for this. The terrible spectacle a little over a year ago of evangelical Christian leaders going to Washington, D.C. and hosting what they called a Jericho march. A Jericho march. And they marched seven times, evangelical Christian leaders, around the U.S. Capitol, and then they blew the shofar for the sitting president in the aim that he would be our deliverer but through re-election. My friends, the church of Jesus Christ blows the shofar only for him. Only for him. We risk apostasy in these measures. Well, the The President of the United States, whoever he is, is welcome to come in the church the same way our Scots and English forefathers invited their monarchs. They were happy to come to church as sinners to hear the gospel, but never as King and Lord. There is but one King of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. But these aren't just national affairs. They're choices and situations ordinary Christians face Whenever we're tempted to turn from God's way, from trusting him, and we solve our problems in a short-sighted way by appealing to the world and to sin. Let me quote Davis again. He says, here's a man in a tense or disappointing marriage. Does he seek candidly and graciously to communicate his concerns to his wife so they can prayerfully, perhaps with assistance from a counselor or pastor, restore what is atrophied? Or... Does he insist on seeking solace in an extramarital relationship with a woman he's met at work because she understands me? There are legions of ways, David says, says, that we can become the disciples of Ahaz. We simply say of any situation, my wisdom must handle this rather than I have a father and he will do me good. Matthew 7, 11. But let me point out three vital lessons from what this apostasy, this inexcusable betrayal on the part of Ahaz. And the first is this. When people raised in the church, when professing Christian people turn their hearts to sin and the world for salvation, the results are always ultimately dissatisfying. In fact, they're very painful. Look at verse 20. Look at the chronicler. He's summarizing what is a lot more ink in 2 Kings 6. But here's what he said. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him, against Ahaz, and afflicted him instead of strengthened him. Well, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> when you brought Tiglath-Pileser into your neighborhood, I, I presume he thought he'd be a trusted advisor. He'd sit at the right hand of Tiglath-Pileser. Tiglath-Pileser had other plans 
Second Kings says he made him his vassal. He began imposing immediate tribute. He carved the northern kingdom in Syria into a number of administrative districts, and then Judah became an administrative district of the Assyrian Empire. Pay your tribute, get out of my way. So much for Tiglath-Pileser. And of course, you know, if you know the record of kings and, and, and of the Bible, that his grandson, Sennacherib, will come in the day of Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, and he will seek to destroy Jerusalem. We read of the tribute in verse 21. So Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house uh, of the kings of, and, and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. He wanted, it, he, he wanted to have liberty. He wanted to have his, 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 his prosperity and his strength. That's, that's why he was fighting Syria and Israel. He lost so much more. You know, it's been said of sin. Sin always takes us further than we intended to go. And it always costs us far more than we ever intended to pay. So it is here. The ruin that comes when Christian people take the course of sin. Now, secondly, whenever a Christian experiences or excuses in his or her life a fundamental pattern of sin, an intentional course, Dale Ruff Davis mentioned an adulterous affair, but there's so many other ways this happens. Consciously embrace, embracing a worldly and unbiblical course of action, not only will there be painful circumstances materially, but there will be a precipitous moral and spiritual decline that is certain. Look at verses 22 to 23. This is how it goes. In the time of his distress, Ahaz became yet more faithless. Now, it was pretty bad. When he called Tiglath-Pileser, my father, in the place of the Lord. No, he becomes more faithless. There's always further down to go. This same king Ahaz, it says the chronicler saying, believe it or not, all this is true of one person. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. Now, there's a question here. Is he actually sacrificing to the gods of Syria? One argument says, yes, because remember, the Syrians had defeated him. I think, however, if you read the First Kings, you can consult it yourself, the First Kings 16 account, it's actually the gods of Tiglath-Pileser that he finds in Damascus when he goes there. And that's what we see taking place. Now, here's the point. There is a slippery slope. But once we renounce the Lord, once we, in theory or even in practice, remove the authority of God's word, we are on a slippery slope and there will be a moral, spiritual decline. This is the story of evangelical denominations in the last hundred years. Under pressure from the world, they yield. One of the issues in our lifetime has tended to be the ordination of women. Why? Because feminism was a big deal in the, in the land. And just for that reason, that was a place where 30 years ago, the culture was pushing and pushing and pushing. And so the church yielded, despite the fact that the Bible could not be clearer. And I, could, I, I have and could preach a sermon on that subject. Women are, are the equals of men in the church. I think in general, Satan fears your prayers better, more than he fears ours. It's not denigrating women. But Christ, who rules this church, has appointed men to serve the exercise of authority in the church. 
But what happens when you say, well, we're going to yield on this point? We know the Bible says A, but the culture says B, we're just going to do B and we're going to shuffle it around. Well, what happens is the next issue comes around. This will happen to you personally. It will happen to us denominationally. We're at a time now where the issue in our denomination is homosexuality. And the arguments are being made, plainly contrary to Scripture. That And it's the once you grant the culture the right to exercise authority, rather than God and his word, you will experience a precipitous moral and spiritual decline. This happens in our personal lives. It will the, the, the granting of sin's authority in one issue makes it virtually impossible for a fallen sinner not to do it again on the next. But then thirdly, we see, you see it particularly strongly in 2 Kings 16. It's alluded to at the end of 2 Chronicles 28. That when the church has allied itself to the powers of the world, whether they are political or in a business sense, in, in marketing, or through uh, the, 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 the success strategies that the world would give us, the corrupting effects will always be seen in the secularization of public worship. When the church has allied itself to the Tiglath policer of the world with its strategy, its surefire way of success and influence and money and numbers and cultural relevance, the effects will always be seen in the corruption of public worship. Just look at verses 24 and 25. Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God, and he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. He shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem in every city of Judah. He made high places to make offerings to other gods provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Accommodation to the powers of the world, to the gods of the age will always be reflected in the manner by which the, by which the church worships. Second Chronicles, Second Kings 16 shows Ahaz actually going to Assyria and he receives to Syria, Damascus, and he receives from Tiglath Pileser a new outline for the temple. A new you no, know, we're not going to we're not going to worship that Solomaic Davidic way. We've got our way, and he comes back and he has them. They actually, it's heartbreaking to see he break he destroys the bulls that held up the great seed that Solomon made, and he erects his own. It, it's the altars. It's the worship of the culture that has conquered. And he begins worshiping that way. That is not the beginning of apostasy. That is the downstream effect of an apostasy that has already happened. Well, the record of Ahaz's evil and disastrous life concludes with the, the standard sort of reference to his death and burial. Befitting his apostasy and idolatry, the chronicler signals, shall we say, an unhappy entrance into the grave. Verse 27. And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. Well, in recounting the terrible apostasy of King Ahaz, the chronicler is seeking to urge his generation, 475 B.C. or so. What's his message? He, it's seek the Lord, trust the Lord. It, it's the message of the hymn. Oh, what pain we often bury. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we often bear if we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Trust the Lord. He is a Savior. He's a faithful. He's a mighty Savior. He will deliver us from worldly danger. That's the message. 
And yet as we read these final lines of Ahaz's biography, I think we're reminded of a danger he didn't reckon on, reckon on and for which the world offers no solution. I refer to the great crisis which awaits every sinner beyond the grave. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for man once to die and after that comes judgment. And his story ends with death and condemnation and the judgment of the Lord. You know, we've been noting how God is able to handle all the threats in this life. He really able is able, the whole Bible testifies to it. God is able to handle our troubles. We, we pray, we consult his word, we, we patiently wait. We, we pull together as a Christian people. And so wise believers in this life, we, we become careful in our piety. We, we, we seek him in prayer. We live by his word. We rely on his saving grace. We, we gather together for worship. But, but how much more important are those precepts when we consider the last crisis on which Ahaz did not reckon, which occurred after he died and he stood before the Lord. When you and I come to the last judgment, there will be no Tiglath Beleser to help us. There will be no President of the United States. There will be no Hollywood agent. There will be no management consultant. There is no earthly source that can deliver us from the judgment of a holy God on our sins, but Jesus Christ can and he will. He can and he will. He's the one we trust in this life. Wasn't that Isaiah's message to him? Back in Isaiah 7, the Lord will give you a sign. What was the sign? The virgin will be with child. And she will give him the name Emmanuel, God with us. God has sent his son. And you and I live in a time when he has come and he has lived. He's fulfilled the law on our behalf. He's made the atoning sacrifice to forgive us of our sins. He's conquered the grave with the power of eternal life. He's ascended into heaven. He's interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father. And he is coming back to close the age in glory, after which there will be a final judgment. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Remember how Isaiah went to Ahaz long before these disasters occurred. He urged him, Oh, Ahaz, trust in the Lord. He knew he was wicked. He's witnessing to his sinner. Oh, trust in the Lord. God's word comes to you now, making the same appeal. And Isaiah told of a Savior whom God would provide to deliver his people from their sin. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. But his warning to Ahaz stands true for us as well, both in life and especially in the final judgment beyond the grave. He said, if you do not stand in faith, you will not stand at all. Father in heaven, we thank you for these dreadful scenarios in the midst of which you have flowers of mercy. We're reminded what the stakes are for our generation. Lord, Ahaz is not living today. The chronicler is not living today. We are living today. And so, Father, weak as we are, oh, prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. But we pray that as we are part of your great church on earth at this moment, that we would trust you that we would live out that trust, in part in, in the kind of mercy that you caused to be shown by the Samaritans, the good Samaritans who were 
and moved by your word and they showed mercy. Let, let us bear that same witness. But let us resolutely hold fast to you through Jesus Christ, calling you Father only, Jesus Savior, our only one. Because, Lord, we know that whatever trials you ordain for us, you will save us to the end. And so we give you praise with thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.